Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time before we get into our text this morning. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that yet again another Easter is come and that we are here uh, to celebrate the greatest moment in the history of the universe. And we get to do it again. We're here again, gathered to celebrate the fact that not only did you come and you died to satisfy yourself and your own wrath, that you did so for our benefit, that we can be justified in your sight. And that is only true because the tomb is empty. We thank you for telling us that, for letting us know that, for making salvation available to us, that we aren't stumbling around in the darkness trying to figure out if we're pleasing some unnamed deity and fulfilling his will. That we know, because we have a Bible, and you've spoken, and you've spoken most profoundly and clearly through the word who is your son. As we look at the majestic truth of his resurrection and his finished work on the cross, give us eyes to see so that we would not be merely hearers who delude themselves, but doers who apply and pursue Christ's likeness. It's in his name we pray. Amen. What does it mean for something to be finished? I think we'd all agree that to finish something is different than something being ended or terminated. We would, we would distinguish between those two things. So if I said, I've, we finished the project, that's different than to say, we ended the project. Right? Or, we, hey, we finished our vacation, or we ended vacation. An ended vacation means that some child transgressed and you had to go home, right? It's different than finishing it. Like, we didn't get to go that last day at Disney World. So ending implies an abrupt ceasing. But finishing applies, implies completion. So we know there's a difference between those two. To, be, to, to finish a race means that you accomplish the length of a course, right? But if you ended the race, or the race ended, that means that something else happened to stop the running. That's why they hand out t-shirts at the end that say finisher, not ender. <laughs> ender is just code for quitter, right? So they just have to say finisher. In Amarillo, Texas, there's a restaurant called The Big Texan. And you can go there, and you can get a 72-ounce steak. And if you polish off that joker in an hour, it's free. So there's a contest, right? And there's only two ways that endeavor can finish. You either end through illness, we'll let you fill in that blank, or the time runs out, so it's ended, the contest is ended, or you finish the stake. There's ending and finishing is different. We know that there's a difference in that, that finishing denotes an accomplishment, that a, that a carpenter puts finishing touches on a restored antique, or a musical composer takes that composition through a finishing process, not an ending process, a finishing one. It applies an accomplishment. And if you finish something, it necessarily means that you began something at a previous date, and now that thing is over. It's completed. That's what we, when we say finish, we mean that, because it's, we know the answer to this question, that is it possible for something to be finished yet incomplete? That's not, that doesn't happen, right? If you don't finish the last 13 questions on the test, then you didn't finish the test. It ended or time ran out. 
If you get hurt and you miss the last six games of the season, you didn't finish the season. Your season was ended. So we notice there's a difference between those two, those two words. That finishing is synonymous with completion. Time periods and parties end. Missions and tasks are accomplished. And we're going to look at that word, that idea of finishing, and what Jesus says in John chapter 19, verse 30. If you want to turn there with me, you can. John chapter 19, verse 30. As you're turning there, if you're visiting for the first time or you just kind of came and been here a while, what we've been doing for the past six weeks is looking at the seven sayings that Jesus speaks on the cross. While he's hanging, he says seven distinct things. This is the last one that we're going to look at. Chronologically, it's the sixth one, but it's only spoken merely seconds before the, the last one. The last one is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This is what Jesus says right before that, seconds before he actually dies. So let's look at John 19, verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. It is finished. John doesn't comment on this at all. It stands here in majestic simplicity. And John comments on a lot of enigmatic things that Jesus says. Jesus says a lot of weird things in the book of John, and John records them. Like John chapter 2, he does this miracle where he changes the water into wine. He has these conversations with people, and they're healing. At the end of the chapter, he comments about what Jesus was doing, that he wasn't giving himself to people because he knew what was in the heart of man. John chapter 3, he says weird things to Nicodemus. You must be born again. As those who are born of the Spirit, you don't know how it comes, like the wind. And then John comments on it. In verse 16 and following. And even in the sayings on the cross, the one right before this in John 19, uh, John 19 verse 28, says after this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished said, parentheses, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. So John comments on that I thirst by saying he said that to fulfill the scripture, but not so for it is finished. He just leaves it in majestic simplicity. And we have been tasked to figure out what does that mean? What do you mean by it is finished? We have to task to go in and figure that out. But we need to know before we press on into that question, though, that this word, these words, it is finished, three in English, one in Greek, to telestai. To telestai means to fulfill, and it's written in a grammatical tense that denotes an accomplishment, a definite accomplishment of some task. That's what that tense means for tetelestai. And the root word for tetelestai is telos, T-E-L-O-S. And that word is massive in the New Testament. It's it's the idea of perfection or maturing or, or growing towards an end goal. Some goal being achieved. So that's this word, to telestai. In fact, what scholars discovered through archaeology and just kind of digging up old stuff, that they would find documents that were what we would call uh, tax receipts, essentially. And they would be stamped with the word to telestai, which means paid in full. That this debt that was owed is paid, we put it aside. That's what this is. Jesus says it is finished, one word, to telestai. That's what we're looking at. So let's carry that into our questions. What we've been doing in this series is we've been taking these sayings and then asking them questions. And seeing the Bible has answers, which it has always so far. And we'll continue to see that this morning. So this first question we're going to ask this phrase is what? What is finished? In answering this question, an uh, Anglican pastor from the 1800s named J.C. Ryle 
He, he fleshed it out like this. He said, uh, the finishing of all the known and unknown sufferings which he came to endure as our substitute, the finishing of the ceremonial law which he came to wind up and fulfill as the true sacrifice for sin, the finishing of the many prophecies which he had come to accomplish, the finishing of the great work of man's redemption which was now close at hand. All this we need not doubt our Lord had in view when he said, it is finished. And this idea of finishing, fulfilling, ending is not new with Jesus. Daniel speaks of this in Daniel 19.24. The prophet Daniel prophesies that one will come and do this, that he will finish the transgression, put an end to sin, and atone for iniquity, and to bring an everlasting righteousness. That Daniel says it two chapters before, in chapter 7, verse 13, that Jesus is that one. The son of man, he said, I saw one like a son of man coming down. And it was to him that the ancient of days, which is God, gives the kingdom of all nations and peoples and languages. So Jesus brings into reality this prophecy of the ending of iniquity, the ending of transgressions, the finishing of all that is needed. The Jesus is that one. And we're going to focus in on one piece of this finishing too often we're guilty of skimming real shallow in the words of the Bible and the words of, of Jesus. So what we're not going to do is everything that was possible that J.C. Ryle said. We're just going to drill down into one. We're going to drill down into the atonement. What it means that that is finished. Atonement's a biblical word and a lot of people use it in a lot of different ways as well outside of Christianity. But it means the expiation of sin, the reconciliation between God and man. And for the Christian belief system, according to scripture, it's also the appeasement, the satisfaction of God's wrath against sin. That that's what atonement is. And all worldviews have some version of atonement. When I say worldview, I mean the, the lens through which you perceive society, reality, whatever you want to call it, the filter that you have for that. And all worldviews have some version of atonement, some version of how things are made right. Because all worldviews inherently have three elements. An origin, a problem and a resolution. So an origin, how did we get here and for what purpose? And then a problem, what messed it all up or where's the, the source of evil and things of that nature? Or, and then the resolution, how do we fix it? How do we make society right? How do we make culture right? How do we do that? All worldviews have those three things. Let me give you some examples. So Marxism. The origin, according to Marxism and Karl Marx, is matter. Matter itself is independent and f- capable of functioning independently, which is kind of a, uh, a, uh, a proto-version of evolution, Darwinian evolution. But then he gets past that real quick because he's not very concerned with the origin, but he's concerned with the problem. The problem with culture and society is the institution of private property. Private property is the problem. That's why we have oppression. That's why we have distinction. That's why we have poverty. That's why we have wars and all this stuff. And the resolution of Marxism is let's abolish private property and let's establish communal property or communism. Another worldview that you can see the three pieces in is Margaret Sanger. Margaret Sanger is the woman in the early 1920s who is essentially the founder of what is now called Planned Parenthood. And so her worldview has bled out and has become ubiquitous across the entirety of Western civilization. 
Her origin story is Darwinian evolution. And subsequently, she also adopts what's called social Darwinism or eugenics, which is a decision based off of Darwinism that says who gets to live and who gets to die. These races, these socioeconomic groups, these however kind of people you want to delineate get to live and these get to die. So her problem with society is the rise of Christian morality. And the resolution for that problem is complete and unfettered sexual liberation. That's the worldview prominent, most prominent in our culture today. There's also an Eastern religious world worldview where it's kind of all you kind of lump a lot of the, the genesis of their their uh, religions together. So their origin story is one of just kind of the universal spiritual essence, and let's just leave that be nebulous. The problem that we're all encountering, the, the what's wrong with everything, is a sense of individuality. Individualism is the problem, and you're distinguishing from yourself. You're not seeing the spirit's essence in everything. And the resolution, then, is to become one with the universe by the emptying of the self. And all of that is really just thinly veiled thievery of Christian worldview. But we don't call it origin, problem, and resolution. We call it creation, fall, and redemption or atonement. So we have a creation story that God, the causeless first cause, always eternal, caused everything, created ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. And what messed it all up? Man in the garden, the representative of all of humanity, sins against God and thus sin is imputed to every person. And how do we fix it? How is it fixed? It's fixed like this. I mean, I, I got a quote from an author. I can't say it any better than him. He says, The distinctive teaching of biblical Christianity is that God himself has made full atonement for sinners. And he accomplished this by the substitutionary sacrifice of his son on the cross. Sinners contribute nothing by way of merit or sacrifice to the atonement. That's how it's fixed. So the the Christian worldview states that the problem experienced by all of humanity cannot be solved by anything within humanity. The solution must come from without of humanity. We need a substitute. That's what Jesus is, a substitute. That the problem is not as narrow as government or sexuality or gooey spirituality. It's not that narrow. The problem is much more universal. The problem is holistic within every human being. That we've all been tainted by sin. Every human, every person is fundamentally flawed. And because that's true, everyone is contributing intrinsically to the problem globally. So we need a much bigger solution than any government or any revolution or any movement could do. We need something outside of the bandwidth of humanity. That's why we say that Christianity, we believe in what's called substitutionary atonement. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous Jesus, for the unrighteous, you and I, so that he might bring us to God. We are unrighteous. None of us can figure it out and solve the problem, can, create, can correct the fall. It must come from without, the righteous for the unrighteous. Not unrighteous for unrighteous, but righteous 
for the unrighteous so that we might be brought to God. Not encouraged on our way to God, brought to God. That's the substitutionary atonement, the nature of what we believe as Christians. And this is what we also call the finished work of Jesus. Jesus left nothing undone. Jesus paid all, performed all, accomplished all, and did all that was necessary for salvation. This is the finished work of Christ. That there is no subsequent work required for atonement. To fix the problem of sin and evil in the world, there's nothing that we need to add. It's been done for us. Everything that is necessary for the salvation of men is found in Christ. The perfection of salvation is found in Christ alone. In Christ alone. We need not seek for life anywhere else or anyone else or in anything else but Christ alone. So therefore, we must reject any ideology or religious belief system that says that Christ's work on the cross needs to be accompanied. We have to reject that wholesale because we sing the song, Jesus paid it all. So either he paid it all or he paid none of it. If he paid some of it, then we need to change. Jesus paid some of it and sing that. But that's an impossibility. Either he paid it all or he paid none. There's no middle ground. Titus 3.5 says he saved us. Not because of the things that we have done in self-righteousness. Not not according to the deeds that we have done in righteousness. But according to his mercy. His mercy. He saved us by his mercy. Whatever it is that we could do or think or act or practice is irrelevant. He paid it all. We need not add We cannot add to his work. We then must also reject any ideology, any religious belief system that says that Jesus needs to be crucified afresh. That sacrifice needs to be renewed every week. As if I need to yank down from heaven from the right hand of God and crucify Jesus again symbolically in communion. I don't do that. We don't do that. It was once for all. Because either that cross in time and in space for six hours in AD 33 on a hill right outside of Jerusalem, either that was sufficient or it wasn't. We don't keep adding to it. So we don't crucify Christ every week in communion because it was once for all. Hebrews 9.12 says this. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Redemption isn't eternal if it doesn't last forever. And it's not secured if I have to keep doing it every week. That's why the author says once for all. The the chapter goes on in Hebrews 9, 25 and 26. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to offer suffer. This is Jesus. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he had appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That we don't need to behave like the priests going in regularly throughout the year and then once big time every year for the sacrifice of the atonement. We don't keep doing that. 
We don't keep symbolizing that either with communion, that he needs to be sacrificed for us again afresh because it was once for all, not repeatedly. If it needed to be repeatedly, then it should have started before the foundation of the world began. But it happened in space and in time in AD 33, so we hold to that. My seminary president, Paige Patterson, said it really well like this. He said, the Apostle John, speaking of John 19.30, the Apostle John understood this exclamation to be a confident avowal that the cross itself had accomplished all that God intended and that, in effect, it paved the way for reconciliation of man to God. John got that. That's why John records that. So we need to ask another question. So we know what is finished but how can he say that on Friday? Sunday, this is, this is Easter Sunday. This is Resurrection Sunday. This is where we rejoice and we have all these pictures of a hole in a rock with a bigger rock on the side of it. Because it's an empty tomb. We celebrate today. But Jesus says it's done on Friday. How can he say that it's done on Friday when he hadn't risen from the grave? Because Joseph of Arimathea still had to climb up on a ladder and get a claw hammer and pull the nails out of his hand, let the corpse of the Son of Man fall on him, and then haul it into a rock hole. How is it finished then? Because we celebrate today, not on Friday. How can he say it's finished? Well, what we need to know on the front end is that the suffering was all finished. The suffering was done on the cross. Jesus suffered the full wrath of God, the equivalent of what hell is for an unbelieving sinner on the cross. He suffered the fullness of that. There was no suffering for atonement left to be done. That was done at the cross. It was over. But however, the resurrection is absolutely necessary for salvation. Romans 8, 34 says, Who is to condemn? Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who's at the right hand, who indeed is interceding for us? The resurrection is indivisibly linked to the death of Christ. Indivisibly linked. The two cannot be separated. Paul says it like this elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 15, 17 through 19. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are most to be pitied. If Christ hasn't raised, then we are the most pathetic people on the planet. So it's intrinsically linked in it. And we rejoice at the empty tomb. That's why today we celebrate. Today we are loud. Today we are colorful. Not on Friday. But the work is done on Friday. And Jesus knew when he says that, that practically the atonement had been accomplished. There was no other stumbling block in the way. There was no other hurdle to be accomplished. It was just God raising him from the dead. There's nothing that could possibly hinder him from finishing from him finishing what he was sent to do. So he could say it is finished, and that's in all honesty. At the end of the football game. You're up a few touchdowns, but you got some minutes. What do you got to do? You got to kneel it out. You don't dunk the coach until the clock runs down. Because what if something happens? I'm a living testament to that. We're playing that, playing high school football, and we got the end of the game coming on. It's like 30 seconds left. We're up by three. They fumble. We pick it up. 
We're on our four-yard line. 30 seconds left. All you got to do is kneel it out. The game is over. People are rejoicing. But wait a minute. You have a boneheaded quarterback, and his name is me. (laughs) And you take the snap, and you back up five yards. What yard line was I on? The four. Five-yard lines puts me where? In the end zone. For those of you unfamiliar with American football, you don't stop running in your own end zone. And when you fall down there, you give the other team two points. I've never done math faster in my life. Then you back up and kneel, and then you're like, oh, how many points are we ahead? Ahead oh, by one point. Then you got to kick it to them. It was bad. And my, <laughs> so bad that on Monday, my principal, who taught our chemistry class, he goes, what were you thinking? <laughs> What'd you do? And I was like, I was really under a lot of pressure. It was hard. You don't celebrate till the clock runs down and the game is over, right? But you can talk about the game being over. The commentators can talk about it being over as the clock is running down and they're just in the victory formation kneeling it out. But you don't dunk the coach and you don't run on the field and rip your helmet off and scream and shout for joy until the clock runs down. That's what's going on here. Jesus can say it is finished because for all intents and purposes, it was over. There was nothing left to be done but just to fulfill the prophecy of being three days in the tomb and then emerging victorious. That's why he can say, in all honesty, that it is finished. That's why our crescendo of rejoicing is today. But we know that the battle was won on Friday. So it was finished. And Jesus can say it is finished in the same way Paul can refer to the past tense glorification of all those who have been justified. Justified meaning being saved. Paul says in Romans 8.30 that those who are justified will be glorified. He says in past tense, glorified. But you and I who have been justified are still here. I'm not yet glorified because I got to eat and my ankles hurt. I'm not in heaven yet. But Paul can refer to it in past tense because it's as good as done. Nobody who's been saved won't go to heaven. So he can say that past tense and Jesus is referring to it the same way. That it's finished. It's done there. We're just going to fulfill some prophecy along the way and rejoice on Sunday. So that's why he can say it is finished in all honesty. But we, the last question we need to ask as a, as a group is what does it mean for humanity? What does it mean for mankind that it was finished on the cross? So any attempt that we could make as people to finish the work of God, to finish the will, the law of God, would always be piecemeal and a ramshackle job at best. We, we don't have it in us to do that because the perfect law of God demands perfect compliance. Were you and I to attempt to comply with the law of God, it would not be perfect, thus not meeting the demands. So what does it mean for us in humanity that Jesus' work is finished? It means that Christ has completed it. Jesus is the terminus of the law. The law finds its fulfillment. When I say the law, I mean the first five books of the Bible. All the rules that God laid out are fulfilled in Christ. He says he would do that in Matthew 5. He's a fulfillment of the law. So what the law requires, Jesus has perfectly fulfilled. That's what it means for us. It means that justification before a holy God is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's, that's how it can come about. If we are to participate in the finished work of Christ in any way, it will be only through faith. It will not be in anything that we have done or could do or might do. 
It will be only through faith if we're to participate in that at all. If we were to try to bring anything else into that transaction, we would be outside the bounds that God has set for the humans approaching him. He is God. He gets to define how he will be reconciled to sinful people. He is God. He gets to lay the parameters by which he will be approached. That's the problem with Judaism. Paul says in Romans 10 verse 2 that they have a zeal for God, but it's not in accordance with knowledge. That's their big problem. They know the right name. They know it's Yahweh. They know he created everything. But they said, we will come to you not through this person, Jesus, who was crucified and murdered as an insurrectionist. We will come to you by how we want to. We will come to you on our terms. We will not approach you the way that you have laid out for us. That's their big problem, and God rejects that. You don't get to come to him how you want to. You come how he has laid out and defined for us, and that is through Christ alone. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. Read Galatians 1 with me real quick. Turn to Galatians 1. Uh, Galatians is a book where Paul is just railing on this church who has added to the works of Christ. And look at verse 6 of chapter 1. Paul says to them, he got into it pretty quick. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but that there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. If you read the rest of Galatians, if you're familiar with it, you know what is this different gospel? It's not a real gospel, obviously, there's only one. But what's this different version that people are peddling to the church at Galatia? And they're adding in the works of, of religion, yeah, Jesus is, he's for salvation, but you add in some circumcision, add in some holy days, add in some other ceremonial religious rituals, and that is real salvation. And Paul says, let that person be accursed. And accursed is anathema. That's not just like, let him stop talking and let's, let's kick him out. He's like, let that person be condemned eternally. If you distort the true gospel, that's what he's saying. He says it twice. He says if an angel does that, he says if I show up and do that, be accursed. You distort the gospel, add something in to the finished work of Christ. That's what it means for us. But the real gospel is in Romans 3. Look at Romans 3, 21 through 26. This is, this is how salvation will come about. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who, what? Has faith in Jesus. 
That's whom God justifies, the one who has faith in Jesus. It's a gift by grace. If you get a gift and then you give that person money, it's no longer a gift. It was a product that you bought. If you get a gift and then you go work it off for them, that wasn't a gift. That was wages that you earned. And if it's called a gift, it is inherently a gift. And we cannot add anything to it. That's what it means for us. That Jesus' work is finished. And there's, we bring nothing to the table to our salvation. All we did was contribute sin. We sinned and made it necessary for that to happen. Other than that, we contribute nothing to that transaction of moving from death to life, from eternal death to eternity, because Jesus' work is finished, and it's a gift. So we can add nothing to it. There's nothing left for you and I to do but believe. There's nothing left to do but believe. So this moment, John 19.30, what Jesus is effectively saying is that there is nothing left to do. The sin debt of my people has been paid in full. That's what it is finished means. There's nothing left for anybody else to do, nothing left for me to do as Jesus speaking this phrase. The sin debt has been paid in full. It's over. That's what he's saying on this cross. So what does it mean to humanity? What does it mean that we heard, as human mankind, we heard a victory cry. We heard a shout of triumph. We heard a victor proclaiming his victory. That's what we heard on the cross. That's what it means to us, is that it's over. That every requirement of God's law has been satisfied. And every ounce, every iota, every molecule of God's full and righteous wrath has been satisfied, has been appeased. That's what it means for us. That's what it means. That's why we celebrate so much. That's why this is such an exciting, the most exciting day of the year for any Christian. Because we all focus on this. We, We hone in on this. So in conclusion, Jesus says it is finished and he gives up his spirit. John 19, 30, he bows his head and gives up his spirit. He gives up his spirit so that we can receive the Holy Spirit. So that we can have God himself dwelling within us. And I want to leave you guys with one verse. This one verse. This is the verse that converted Charles Spurgeon, the great London preacher of the 1800s. It's Isaiah 45, 22. It says, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, everybody who can hear, for I am God and there is no other. So we leave ourselves with this, that this turning to God inherently entails a turning from whatever it is you were before and whatever it is you were doing before. We call that repentance. And then the turning to, that is the true belief. That is saving faith. And God's saying, turn to me, all the ends of the earth, and be saved. For I am God and there is no other. There is nothing left. So if you, in this hypothetical scenario that's not going to happen for real, but if you were to be at the gates of heaven when you die, and God says, why should I let you in? If you're going to appeal, if your plan is to appeal to yourself in any way, then you are not getting in. 
That has to be abundantly clear. If I am put to me, why are you going to go to heaven? Why do you think God would let you in? Because I've been a good person or I've gone to church or, or anything. Anything that you can appeal that involves yourself means you are not getting in. Because faith alone received as a gift is how we get in. That's how we avoid suffering the wrath of God that Jesus endured on the cross. And that's how we are grafted in to that reality of the finished work of Christ on the cross. So let the words of Isaiah resonate in your brain. Turn to me, all the ends of the earth, and be saved, for I am God, and there is no other. I heard one preacher, uh, pastor, describe uh, sermons like this or words like this, that we as Christians, that if somebody will run up to the edge of the cliff of hell and they are, they are determined for that, then they better not be without us clinging to their knees and pleading with them to turn to God and be saved because he is God and there is no other. So that's me today clinging to your knees and saying, please turn to God. You've been pled with today. And those of us who have turned and have been saved, we rejoice in the finished work that this is what the atonement accomplished. We rejoice in that and that truth and we necessarily then go forth with the words of life on our lips. Like Peter, when the question's put to him, when Jesus says, are you going to leave too? He says, where else would we go? You alone have words of life. And we have those words of life as his church. Let's be faithful to give that this week and every day as we rejoice in the finished work and the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. Father in heaven, we are so grateful to know that this is true. We are so grateful to know this most monumental of all truths, that it is finished. That it was all done on the cross and the celebration happens on Sunday. And we celebrate today. We celebrate today as a body. We celebrate today as families and as individuals redeemed, plucked from the flames into your gracious arms as a gift by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. Thank you. We, just, we can only thank you. We can't pay you back. We can't earn some kind of extra favor. We can say thank you. Let the today, let Resurrection Sunday 2017 be a resonation of thankfulness of the redeemed. Father, And we pray for those who don't know you. Let us share freely and liberally the words of life and cling to the knees of those who must turn and be saved because you are God and there is no other. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.